All right, you're back and I'm back. This is Dr. Gil Parat doing the Hospital Medicine Podcast. Today we are talking immune thrombocytopenia purpura, also known as ITP. Well, let's do a few formalities. While I am not without sin, as of today, I have taken no money from the pharmaceutical industry. Not saying that's a sin, but I therefore have no conflicts of interest to report. ITP, immune thrombocytopenia purpura, is known by a lot of different names. Sometimes it's known as idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura. Sometimes the purpura is dropped from the nomenclature. Therefore, the disease nowadays is often simply called immune thrombocytopenia or idiopathic thrombocytopenia if it is indeed idiopathic and not caused by a drug. Sometimes it's known as chronic immune thrombocytopenia purpura because it is a chronic condition for most adult patients. There have been some exciting developments within the past decade in immune thrombocytopenia and I'll definitely get to some of those developments later. Well, let's start with the basics. What is thrombocytopenia? Thrombocytopenia is defined as a platelet count of less than 150,000. Your lab may be a little bit different. Ours uses 140,000. Let's quickly review the basics of platelets themselves. Platelets are non-nucleated cells. They're small cells, and they form platelet plugs at the sites of bleeding. The surface of platelets is where coagulation proteins can bind to allow for thrombin formation. Also, the platelets themselves actually secrete factors that help with vascular repair. They survive about 10 days once released into the circulation, and under normal conditions, about 30% of platelets are sequestered at any one time in the spleen. And that's why hypersplenism is bad, because when you have hypersplenism, 90% of platelets can be sequestered in the spleen. What is the definition of sequestered? It means to be isolated and hidden away. Well, thrombocytopenia occurs because of two major reasons. The first reason would be decreased production, such as bone marrow depressant drugs, think chemotherapy and other drugs, or primary bone marrow diseases. The other reason thrombocytopenia occurs is decreased survival or sequestration of the platelet. This can have a number of etiologies, and it's not limited to sepsis, DIC, TTP, hypersplenism, or the topic I will be covering today, which is immune thrombocytopenia. The world of immune thrombocytopenia is one of platelet destruction, and it is a world I will be only partly discussing during this podcast. I say partly because immune thrombocytopenia can be autoimmune-induced or it can be drug-induced. I will only briefly mention the drug-induced thrombocytopenia since that topic really would need its own podcast to cover adequately. The most common drug-induced immune thrombocytopenia is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, also known as HIT, and it has a very different treatment regimen than what we'll be reviewing today. The autoantibody in chronic immune thrombocytopenia, again, also sometimes called ITP, can target different areas of the platelet depending on the patient. Often the glycoprotein 2B3A uh, sometimes will be the target, sometimes the glycoprotein 1B9, and sometimes other antigens on the platelet surface will be the target. 
making the diagnosis of immune thrombocytopenia is often the result of making a diagnosis of exclusion. First, you want to rule out systemic illnesses that would cause thrombocytopenia, as well as medication and other etiologies. If your patient has lupus, or is on heparin, or sulfa drug, or septic, or an alcoholic, or a whole host of other considerations, it is too early to make the diagnosis of ITP. A bone marrow exam is not, is not usually required, but if you proceed with one, you will see increased megakaryocytes in the bone marrow in ITP. Remember, megakaryocytes are the huge cells in the bone marrow that make platelets, and these will be important in understanding some of the newer treatment options I will be discussing. What are the clinical signs of ITP? Well, often there's no clinical signs. It's something that we pick up on a CBC done for other reasons. The most feared complication is central nervous system bleeding, but the incidence of that is actually pretty low. On exam, you may see petechiae or purpura. As a general rule of platelet disorder bleeding, hemorrhage tends to be mucosal or cutaneous, and that differs from a clotting factor deficiency that often presents with intramuscular or intraarticular bleeding. In women, excessive menstrual bleeding is often a finding in significant thrombocytopenia. Let's talk bleeding and platelet counts, and I think we need to talk about this in a cautious manner. People like to throw out numbers with definitive authority, which is always silly in medicine, even though I do it myself. Major bleeding usually happens when platelet counts drop below 10,000. The goal in ITP is usually to get the platelet count greater than 30,000. That's if you are a strict numbers person, as many people are when it comes to treating ITP. The real goal is ensuring adequate hemostasis to prevent complications of bleeding, and that's why 30,000 seems reasonable since severe bleeding is more unlikely once you get above that number. However, remember in ITP that the antibody is attached to the platelet. Therefore, a drop in the platelet count is not the only issue of concern. You may also be affecting the platelet function with that antibody attached. So, let's say you drop the platelet count to 40,000, which we typically think is a safe range in regards to bleeding. But if those platelets are not functioning, you may bleed. And some hematologists have referred to this phenomenon as wet ITP. And for you literature fans, William Faulkner said, I feel like a wet seed wild in the hot blind earth. And whatever he means by that, and I have no idea, I suspect it is a better sensation than wet ITP. So keeping that in mind, the platelet function may not be normal in ITP. Let's just talk about thrombocytopenia and the risk for bleeding in most patients. When you have 100,000 or more platelets, there usually will be no abnormal bleeding, and that even is the case with major surgery. When you start getting into the range of 50,000 to 100,000 platelets, 
patients may bleed longer than normal with severe trauma. In the 20,000 to 50,000 range, bleeding occurs with minor trauma, but spontaneous bleeding seems to be unusual. When you start getting below 20,000, that's when you start getting a little bit worried about the risk of spontaneous bleeding. And then when you start getting below 10,000, patients are considered to be at high risk for severe bleeding. Well, it's time to address treatment options. I would like to make it clear that I only treat adult patients and therefore will not discuss this disease process in children, for which there are definitely different considerations. The treatment of ITP is getting pretty cool and pretty complicated as more choices are discovered. Um, one of those really cool things is that Helicobacter pylori infection might be a potential etiology in a small subset of patients. I just learned that myself, and I think I will therefore directly quote the MIXAP-15 out by the uh, American College of Physicians. And what they say is this, quote, Investigators have recently confirmed an association between ITP and H. pylori infection, suggesting eradication of H. pylori can result in remission of ITP. However, this finding seems to be most prominent in selected Asian populations and does not appear to be a factor in treating ITP in the United States. And that's the end of the quote. I guess my question is, of course, what if you have an Asian patient in the United States with ITP and Helicobacter pylori? I think I will keep this knowledge in the back of my mind for those situations. Now, it is important to note that many patients do not need treatment at all for ITP. If thrombocytopenia was discovered incidentally on a CBC and there is no clinical bleeding and the platelet count is greater than 30,000 to 50,000, that patient probably will not need pharmaceutical therapy. Now, if they're a motor cross racer or live a lifestyle at high risk for trauma, one needs to take into account the individuality of each patient, but many will not need treatment. What is the first line of treatment? Corticosteroids. About a milligram per kilogram of prednisone is where you start, and if you're going to see an improvement, it usually happens within the first two weeks. How to taper steroids really remains up to the individual practitioner. Many advocate for a slow taper in ITP. The problem, as many of you know who have ever treated this disease, is that once the steroids are discontinued or tapered too low, the platelet count also often starts dropping. Not always right away. You may maintain a satisfactory platelet count for a while, and then six months later, that remission is no longer sustained. That makes this a great moment to pause and ask, what is the spontaneous remission rate with ITP? And by spontaneous, I don't mean remission from splenectomy or steroids. I mean the remissions that happen without any treatment. And only about 9% of adults have spontaneous remission. Apparently, it is much higher for children. And that adult rate is based on retrospective data published in the American Journal of Medicine in 1995. And given that this is mostly a chronic disease, and since we hate the idea of long-term corticosteroids and all the horrible side effects associated with their use, 
we need to consider other options in this disease. Thankfully, we have some options, though all of them have their own risks to be considered. It is worth saying that even though ITP is often a chronic disease, if you can keep the platelet count above the 30 to 50,000 range, it is usually a benign disease and most patients obtain that benign disease status. A study in the journal Blood in 2001 suggested 93% of patients usually do attain a platelet count greater than 30,000. Despite ITP usually being benign, it isn't always, and there are definitely people still dying from bleeding complications of ITP. Some of the old data says mortality is up to 5% in patients, but many suspect that number has dropped with more treatment options now being available. Speaking of which, if you don't get a sustained complete remission with corticosteroids and need to be on a different therapy, well, you have now entered the world of second-line therapies. And splenectomy is actually one of the original treatments for immune thrombocytopenia, even though it's considered a second-line therapy now. Corticosteroids, for you history buffs, they weren't manufactured synthetically until the late 1940s, and in 1950, the Nobel Prize of Medicine was awarded for that discovery, but surgery was around before the steroids were around, and therefore, um, even though we definitely consider splenectomy second-line therapy because you want to try steroids first, it is one of the original therapies. When you have antibodies attaching to platelets, they are then destroyed in the spleen, and to some degree in the liver, but mostly the spleen, and they are destroyed in the spleen by phagocytosis remove the spleen, and that should decrease the destruction. If splenectomy is where your patient is heading, make sure you give the appropriate vaccines at least two weeks before surgery. In review, those are Pneumovax, Haemophilus, Influenza, and meningococcal vaccines. The risk of overwhelming sepsis and splenectomized patients is something doctors always have to be watching for, and you will see impressive cases of that in your career if you haven't already. I think it is fair to say that if you are thinking your patient really needs a splenectomy, particularly in this day of multiple treatment options, it is a decision in which you'll need a hematologist consultation to help decide the appropriate management. Splenectomy remains an important and effective treatment option for many with ITP. It can achieve a complete remission in more than 60% of patients, and those interested in that specific data can look at a study in 2004 in the journal called Blood for more details. So other than corticosteroids and splenectomy, which most of you already knew about, what is in the arsenal? Well, there is danazol, an androgen, as being one choice. I haven't seen it used for ITP and therefore will only comment that it is an option being used and I suspect only being used on rare occasion. I would also presume if your patient is a woman, you would want to find another option besides anabolic steroids. And that leads to the next option, which is rituximab, um, also now being used for some patients with ITP. Rituximab, as most people know, is a monoclonal antibody 
against B cells. And by knocking out B lymphocytes that make antibodies, the result is less antibody to destroy your platelets. Since it suppresses the immune system, it is a concerning treatment, as are other immune-suppressing drugs like cyclophosphamide and azothioprine that are also sometimes used in immune thrombocytopenia. If you're in a pinch with a bleeding patient, particularly one with a central nervous system bleed or needing urgent surgery, intravenous gamma globulin is a short-acting option in severe ITP. It does take about three days to work, but does work most of the time. IVIG is effective only transiently and only helps increase the platelet count for about two weeks, and then you will notice the platelet count starting to drop again. Now, let me say a few words about IVIG. I am on the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee at my hospital, and therefore they send me a journal called Pharmacy and Therapeutics. And last month, in August 2011, Pharmacy and Therapeutics did a 31-page product profile on a type of intravenous immune globulin called Privagen, which makes for some riveting reading. An interesting question they answer is, how many healthy volunteers are needed to donate plasma to make IVIG? And it depends on the IVIG product, of course, and that's among the reasons that IVIG products are tolerated and work uh, differently. But I'll quote you a stunning fact about IVIG manufacturing from that review. They say, quote, IVIG products are derived from pooled plasma donated by a large number of healthy donors, 15,000 to 60,000 donors, to ensure that the products contain a wide spectrum of antibodies. And that's the end of the quote, but that's a lot of donors. The other quote is that the mechanism of action of IVIG is complex and is not completely understood. The review does get into theoretical reasons why adding more antibodies into the body when you are already making unwanted autoantibodies against platelets may help temporarily increase the platelet count, but I don't want to delve too deep into the field of immunology in this podcast. So let's discuss the newest weapons in the war. Those of you wanting an in-depth review of these drugs should read the well-written August 15, 2011 article in the New England Journal of Medicine, and that was titled Thrombopoietin Receptor Agonist for Primary Immune Thrombocytopenia. Or you can listen to my summary of it and trust I'm telling you the truth. It may be a good time to heed the advice of the deceased President Ronald Reagan, who said, trust but verify. Well, let's talk thrombopoietin. Thrombopoietin is the key to understanding the new treatments. Thrombopoietin is produced mostly in the liver, and then it goes to the bone marrow where it tells the megakaryocytes to start making platelets. In diseases where you destroy your bone marrow, the levels of thrombopoietin are usually high. I tend to think of it like TSH. If your thyroid doesn't make thyroid hormone, the TSH will be high in attempt to stimulate production of the thyroid hormone. However, in ITP, in immune thrombocytopenia, the levels are normal. 
nobody is sure why, as one would suspect, that the levels would be high in ITP since you would think the body would make higher levels of thrombopoietin to stimulate the megakaryocytes, but it's not the case for whatever reasons. And since the levels are not high, somebody thought, why not stimulate the thrombopoietin receptors on megakaryocytes and see if we can therefore stimulate platelet production? Initially seemed to be a good idea, but a bad thing happened when this was attempted and the trials actually had to be stopped. Autoantibodies formed against the patient's own thrombopoietin. But the scientists kept persisting and um, eventually came up with second-generation thrombopoietin agonists. And they actually worked without forming autoantibodies. And so now we have two drugs that we can use. I know I'm not going to pronounce these drugs correctly, but the first drug I'll mention is Romiplostim, that is R-O-M-I-P-L-O-S-T-I-M. And Romiplostim is administered subcutaneously and currently costs a pretty penny at $5,313 each month in the United States. And then there's another drug called L-Trombopag, and that's E-L-T-R-O-M-B-O-P-A-G, which is an oral drug that is much cheaper than Ramaplastin, only costing $3,960 each month. Needless to say, these drugs are usually only used for chronic ITP in patients who have ongoing bleeding and have failed other agents. These drugs do seem to work with impressive efficacy. In summary, patients receiving Ramaplastim achieved a platelet count greater than 50,000 in 94% of patients. Again, this is in a population where other therapy usually failed, though I should say not all the patients in the trials had undergone splenectomy. L-trombopag had a slightly smaller, though very impressive, response rate where 87% of patients achieved a platelet count of at least 50,000. I'm happy to say they didn't just look at the number of platelets, but actually also looked at outcomes. The rate of moderate to severe bleeding decreased from 23% of patients to 12% of patients with these drugs. Patients were also able to reduce or discontinue the corticosteroids much of the time. With both drugs, Continuous use is needed to maintain increased platelet counts, again at a very steep financial price each month. Since they are such new medications, we can't pretend to know what their long-term side effects will be. We do know some of their short-term side effects. And of particular concern is some patients had elevated liver function tests, some patients had thromboembolism events, and then there was this concern that there may be a potential to cause bone marrow fibrosis with these drugs. So in order to obtain these drugs, if you can afford them at all, patients at this time have to enroll in a registry as a condition of getting the medication. So that's what's new, and you're up to date probably compared to most of your colleagues. Lastly, I think I do have to mention the option 
of platelet transfusions. As mentioned, destruction of platelets will occur because of the circulating autoantibodies, and therefore transfusion is not an ideal option. That being said, in a life-threatening emergency, most doctors, including myself, will transfuse patients who need platelets in ITP if they're bleeding. And every time I've done it, somebody always has to mention that the platelets you transfuse are a waste because the antibodies will destroy those platelets. But there is even some evidence to back up the efficacy of platelet transfusion in emergency as a temporizing measure, um, which you can always fling in front of the face of that naysayer, particularly if you give IVIG with the platelets. And the American Journal of Medicine in 1986 had a study showing platelet counts increased and stayed up for about a day in 5 of 13 patients in that small study in which they received platelets without intravenous uh, immunoglobulin. A study from the American Journal of Hematology in 2008 showed that adding IVIG to platelet transfusions kept counts greater than 50,000 in about 62% of patients at 24 hours. So not great results and not big trials, but it's better than showing no efficacy and we can't reverse death with much efficacy. So I do advocate the use of platelets in an emergency if needed. You have been listening to Hospital Medicine with Dr. Gil Parat. As of today, I have no reviews in iTunes and it makes me sad. If you're getting something out of this podcast, let me know, and then I will probably be motivated to continue doing them. For those of you who may, for whatever reason, want to learn more about me, I do have a website, www.gilparat.com, and that's G-I-L-P-O-R-A-T is how you spell Gilparat. Hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening.